You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. All right, quiet on the set. Camera speed. Sound production, take one. Action! Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era. Hear fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine, who quite literally lives just beneath the Hollywood sign, and actress-writer Nan McNamara. Now your hosts, Steve and Nan. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We're uh, excited to have another fascinating story for you. And today, we'll be talking about the actress Carol Landis. Nan, when were you first aware of Carol Landis? You know, I wasn't actually aware of her name connected to who she is. I had seen her in films, but not known the story. And she's exquisite. She's beautiful. She's talented. She can sing. And she's smart. Well, very smart. And in, in fact, a, a way to kind of launch the story, which will give listeners an insight into Carol Landis and who she was, kind of goes back to the old days of Hollywood. Back in those days, there were these clever public relations agents, and they loved to give these gimmicky often misogynistic monikers to their up-and-coming stars. Right. We had the sarong girl, Dorothy L'Amour. We had the sweater girl, Lana Turner. We had the peekaboo girl, Veronica Lake. And probably cringiest of all, we had the oomph girl, Ann Sheridan. Yeah, they're all they're all pretty cringy. Oh, they're awful. <laughs> Got to remember, back in the day, the studios were all run by old men. Right. So, right. of course, they're going to give these uh, titles to the actresses. Never the men. You, you never heard Gary Cooper referred to as the yowza wowza boy. No. Or, Anything no. like that. It wasn't going to happen. Right. Well, when Carol Landis came along and she started to get some traction as an actress, the publicity agent for Hal Roach Studios, Frank Seltzer, decided he was going to give her one of those silly monikers, and he came up with the Ping Girl. Which is super cringy. Oh, cringy. Super cringy. Well, he said that he gave her that title because she made people want to purr. But come on, we saw Wayne's World. We know what Ping means. Yes, we know what Ping means. <laughs> we know and, exactly what he meant there. And I love what her response to that was. Oh, she was having none of it. Yeah. And, and you know what? She was super smart. She was super savvy. She understood the power of the press and the power of publicity. So she went to the press and she said, oh no, I am not going to be your Ping girl. No way. Right. It's stupid. It's silly. And by doing that, she got so much more publicity and attention for denouncing the Ping Girl moniker than she ever would 
could have had she just accepted the silly name. It was really savvy of her because I would think as an up-and-coming actress, she would say yes to whatever they threw at her. Right. You know, essentially wanting to move her career as quickly as possible. But I love the <laughs> heart of her that she was like, heck no, yeah. that is not happening. And I love that it was heck no, but then there was a little aside of, hey, I can get more publicity if I fight it. Yes. So I, it just yes. shows you what she was a very ambitious, very smart, very savvy young lady. Yes. And, you know, it's just as ferocious as she was in her career. She was equally ferocious in her love life. Yes, she was. Another one of our people that has multiple <laughs> marriages and yes. loves. Yes. And, you know, and ultimately, I think that ferocity was ultimately her downfall. Yeah. And so today we're going to discuss the life, the career, and sadly, the tragic ending of Carol Landis, who was a great star on the rise that never quite made it to the top, but was certainly headed that way. Wonderful. I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, well, a little background on her. She was born in a tiny little town in Wisconsin called Fairchild, Wisconsin. She was, her original name was Frances Lillian Mary Ridsty. She's a beautiful Midwestern gal. She's a, yes, perfect. A milkmaiden, as I used to say. Yes, right, right. <laughs> Which also is horribly misogynistic. She endured a lot as a child. She endured poverty. She endured a father who worked on the railroads, who abandoned the family when she was a baby. Her mother moved around. They moved to San Diego. Then they moved in 1923 to San Bernardino. And that's where she kind of grew up. And something really interesting and pivotal happened to her in San Bernardino. When she was 12 years old, she entered a bathing beauty pageant, which, say that back with me, a 12-year-old in a bathing beauty pageant. Yeah, that somebody would even allow that exactly. nowadays. Where was social services when you needed oh, them? Right, right. But she ended up placing fourth. And as a prize, she won a pair of nylons. Well, she thought it was the greatest thing in the world. And she made a connection at that point in her life that her appeal and her beauty could be a commodity. Mm -hmm. And it, she could use that to further her dreams. And her dream was Hollywood. She was a girl who had stars in her eyes who wanted to be a movie star. And this kind of taught her a lesson of how to go about doing that. She knew, first of all, she had to get out of San Bernardino. Yes, right. <laughs> and so the easiest way for her, this attractive young girl, when she was 15, she married the local boy, Irving Wheeler, who was 19. They ran off to Yuma, Arizona, eloped because it was going to get her out of San Bernardino. Well, her mom intervened because of her age, had the whole thing annulled. But Carol, not to be deterred, she tracked down the old absentee father and got his permission that when she turned 16, she could remarry Irving, which she did. And interestingly, three months later, they have their first big newlywed fight. Carol walks out. She's, she's not happy. She's it. done. She's done. And so she leaves, but neither Wheeler nor Carol ever filed for divorce, which tab that for now. That's going to track a little bit right, later. Right, right. She eventually landed in San Francisco. She wanted to seek fame and fortune. And she, along with another aspiring actress named Kay Ellis, they got work at the Royal Hawaiian Club as a hula dancing sister act. <laughs> you know, I've always wanted to do that, a hula sister dancing act or hula dancing sister act. <laughs> I know. Like once you leave San Bernardino, what else do you do? do, but yes. become a hula dancing In San act. Francisco, I'm putting <laughs> right. that together. Well, and things were a little tight for her in San Francisco. And, you know, there's all these rumors. 
there's all these reports that while she was in San Francisco that she might have worked as a call girl. Mm. You know, it's never been really substantiated, but it's common belief that that's what she did to help survive because I guess you don't make a lot of money as a hula dancing sister act. She eventually scored a really good job as a band singer with the Carl Ravaza Orchestra in a swanky nightclub in Santa Cruz. But two things very important happened during this period. A, she changed her name to Carol Landis. And you'll notice her Carol has an E on it. Right, like like Carol Lombard. Who was one of her favorite stars. Uh And second of all, she was able to save up enough money finally to make it to Hollywood, which was her dream. So she lands in Hollywood and she learned how to hang out at the studios and make friends. Again, lots of rumors. She was very friendly during this time, which helped her secure jobs. But she eventually got work as a chorus girl in director Busby Berkeley's big musical, Gold Diggers of 1937, which starred Dick Powell and Joan Blondell. And she also appeared in the 1937 classic version of A Star is Born with Janet Gaynor. Right. And she's in one scene. It's at a racetrack in a bar. And if you notice in the scene also, there's another blonde extra who would soon be up and coming herself. It was Lana Turner. So did both of them stand out in your mind when you look back at that scene? It's funny. I've actually gone back after I researched this and I looked at the scene and they're only on for a flash. They okay. really, you yeah, never they truly really are background. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She made a pivotal connection during this time because she got the eye of Busby Berkeley. That's a pretty big person to have exactly. connection to. Exactly. If somebody's going to help her career, it's, it's good old Busby. And he did. He helped her secure a $50 a week contract at Warner Brothers, which was huge for her. Oh, and yeah. A, that was a, a lot of money. A lot of money. And then, of course, there were all these rumors that they were in a big romance. Well, at Warner Brothers, she basically was an extra. I mean, she appeared in forgettable movies with silly titles like Girls on Probation. It I was... like this title, though. <laughs> Men Are Such Fools. Uh... That was from 1938. <laughs> Maybe that's precursor of things to come from Carol. <laughs> Maybe. Um, well, she finally did get her name in the credits, and it was for a movie called Blondes at Work. And it starred the great Glenda Farrell. And, you know, she started to finally get speaking parts and bigger parts, and she played Errol Flynn secretary and fours a crowd, her career starting to get a little bit of traction until finally in 1939, she lands her first lead in, of all things, a John Wayne Western. I wonder what that was like, because we've heard and talked about John Wayne in the past. And I know that there are stories of John Wayne and Geraldine Page, who was a phenomenal actress and him having a lot of trouble with her. So I'm curious what this must have been like for Carol Landis. I know. I'm so curious. And I've never seen the movie, but I would love to. It was called Three Texas Steers. So okay. I'll have to look that one up. Yeah. Oh, well, so around this time, hubby number one, Irving Wheeler, comes back into play because there's all these rumors about Bugsy Berkeley and their romance. Well, Wheeler shows up and he sues Busby Berkeley for alienation of affection in his divorce suit against Carol Landis. Well, of course, Landis and and Berkeley, they deny a romance. They say they're just great friends. The case was thrown out of court and the divorce was granted. And a few months later, Carol and Busby are engaged. <laughs> well, there you go. There you have it. Carol, Carol knew how to work her angles. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad that she didn't marry someone while still being married to someone else. <laughs> exactly. Well, 
Unfortunately, their engagement was very short-lived because Busby Berkeley got wind of her call girl reputation back in San Francisco, so he broke off the engagement. Okay. Well, Carol rebound quickly because shortly after that, she married for the next time in 1940 to a yacht broker named Willis Hunt. That lasted two months. Okay. We're seeing a little (laughs) bit of a pattern. We are. And I think it really ties back to the abandonment by her father and the treatment by men. I think it really informs her relationships with men throughout her life. And there was also some evidence, or at least stories, of sexual abuse when she was a young girl. Yes, there there were rumors that she was molested by a a distant relative, and I'm sure that played into her psyche as well. Carol finally got a big break, and it came in a big way through producer Hal Roach, who we all know, the Hal Roach Studios, and he cast her as the scantily clad cavewoman opposite the equally scantily clad Victor Mature in 1 million BC in 1940. Wow. So this is a huge break. And wasn't that later remade very famously and successfully with Raquel Welch in 66, 1966? Yes, it was. Absolutely. And everybody knows we all had the poster of Raquel (laughs) in the bear scan or the whatever scan. (laughs) Well, this was a huge break for Carol Landis. She followed this up with a body switch comedy called Turnabout in 1940. 40, which was a big hit. And then she went on to do Topper Returns, which was a sequel to the Cary Grant Constance Bennett hit Topper. Oh. So her career is starting. Yeah, she's to, starting to get some momentum. She's getting momentum. She's getting attention. She's getting bigger and bigger parts. Well, that led her to a contract at 20th Century Fox. And this is when she enters the zenith of her career. And partly due to her relationship with the head of the studio, Daryl F. Zanuck. Zanuck was a bad boy. I think we, we've all heard stories. He was a notorious ladies' man, and he had a reputation for having a daily 4 p.m. tryst with the latest starlet of the day. Oh, dear. (laughs) Well, Carol got into rotation. Carol started a sexual relationship with Zanuck. Whether she cared for him or whether it was just to further her career, we'll never know. But when she was in the relationship with Zanuck, her career took off. Suddenly, she's getting parts as the second lead to Betty Grable in a couple of really popular movies, the musical Moon over Miami in Mm. 1941, and then the terrific film noir called I Wake Up Screaming. She was George Montgomery's leading lady in Cadet Girls. She got the lead in A Gentleman at Heart with Cesar Romero. He even put her in a Sonia Henney skating vehicle called Wintertime. So she's really getting to do a variety of roles. She's not being pigeonholed as some actors are. Yes, absolutely. And this was due to being in favor with Zanuck, because once the sexual relationship with Zanuck ended, her career took a dive. Mm. She wasn't offered the parts with Betty Grable anymore. You know, her career and the movies that she appeared in definitely were more on the B level. You can almost track it from her involvement with Zanuck to the rise of her career and the decline. And this is just during the time period prior to World War II, Yes, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And that brings up a good point because one thing I don't think people know about Carol Landis, and it's one of the things that I admire about her most, is she probably did more for the war effort than any other performer in Hollywood. And I don't think a lot of people know that. Yeah, she was a popular pinup. There is even on YouTube, you can find her (laughs) ode to the men overseas, where she changes costumes a number of times. Um, Let's just put it that way. Give the boys what they want. Yeah. And she even got her pilot's license. She did. She did. And actually flew for the civilian air patrol. She did. And besides that, she was an air raid warden. She was a commander 
commander in the Aerial Nurses Corps. She was an honorary colonel in the American Legion. I mean, she really was a patriotic woman who cared deeply about what was going on overseas and with the the soldiers. And she also toured uh, with the USO. She entertained along with actress Kay Francis and comedian Martha Ray and singer Mitzi Mayfair. They had an incredible tour that she wrote about and published a book about their exploits. And this was turned into the movie Four Jills in a Jeep in 1944. So she actually also has a screenplay credit along with Kate Francis, Martha Ray, and, and Mitzi Mayfair. And this to me, especially during that time period, is so exciting that yes. she's turning content out, that she's creating stories herself. Yes, which, you know, was a little unusual for a, a glamorous star of that day. Absolutely. Also overseas, she picked up another husband. Okay. <laughs> while you're there. You know, pick up a souvenir while you're, you're <laughs> traveling abroad. But Is this the captain? It is. Oh, it is. yeah. You can see them coming out of the church as well. You can yes. see that video. She met an ex- Eagle Squadron captain named Thomas Wallace in London. They fell madly in love. They got married over in London. Three days after the wedding, though, she had to hit the road for the USO show, and he had to go back to the service, so they weren't together a lot. Okay. In 1944, she signed up for another USO show, and this one, she actually caught malaria and almost died while she was over there. She was always gone. He was gone. They didn't spend a lot of time together, and unfortunately, the marriage didn't last long. Okay. Which is a pattern. You know, by 1945, they were divorced. She was on her way back to Hollywood. They made a handsome couple. I know she wrote a photoplay magazine article entitled Don't Marry a Stranger. <laughs> good advice, probably. Yes, good advice. <laughs> we have a lot more to share about Carol Landis, but before we do, it's time for our Hollywood pop quiz. Take it away, Steve. <laughs> All right. In honor of Carol Landis, our pop quiz is about Miss Landis. In 1945, she appeared on Broadway in the musical lady says yes. One of her co-stars was a young actress named Jacqueline Suzanne, who we all know as the famed future novelist. They became super close friends, and in fact, Carol Landis inspired one of Jacqueline Suzanne's great characters from her biggest, trashiest novel. What was the novel? Who was the character? All right. I think I might know this one. No Googling allowed, and we'll be right back with more about Carol Landis and the answer to the quiz. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Steve and Nan will be right back, but first another stop on the Hollywood tour. The Petrified Forest, the 1937 Warner Brothers film that's often cited as the film that launched Humphrey Bogart as a star, started out on Broadway starring Leslie Howard and Bogart. When Warner Brothers bought the film rights to The Petrified Forest, they wanted to cast Edward G. Robinson in the villainous role of Duke, the role Bogart played on stage. However, Leslie Howard, who had negotiated script and final cast approval in his contract, refused to appear without Bogart. So Warner Brothers gave in, and the film made Bogey a star. Bogart remained grateful to Howard for the rest of his life. And in 1952, Bogart and Lauren Bacall named their daughter Leslie Howard Bogart, in honor of Howard, who had died in World War II. And now, back to Steve and Ann. Continuing our discussion about the life of Carol Landis, where we last left, she had 
divorced her third husband. Yes. And she remarried a Broadway producer, W. Horace Schmidlap. Rebound. <laughs> and that did not last. No. And no. then her career really was taking a hit. It was. I mean, it was really in free fall. And so she accepted roles in a couple of low-budget movies to make ends meet. They were filmed in London by Eagle Lion Films. First was The Brass Monkey. The second was The Silk Noose. Neither movie very interesting. But what happened in London was she met and fell in love with screen star Rex Harrison. And this is key to the rest of her life. Absolutely. When they met, it was instant attraction. They fell really hard, but there was only one problem. Rex Harrison was still very married to actress Lily Palmer. That's a big problem. <laughs> yes, big problem. Carol, she came back from England. She was in love. She divorced Schmidlap immediately. She begged Rex Harrison to marry her. Rex kept putting her off, putting her off, and finally just told her, I'm not going to divorce Lily. And it was not even a secret in Hollywood that the two of them were having an affair. Everyone knew it. Oh, it was the worst kept secret. I mean, they appeared in public everywhere. So I'm sure Lily knew. Everybody knew. Yes. But he, he wouldn't divorce Lily, which this is the beginning of the end for Carol Landis, unfortunately. It all really came to a head the weekend of July the 4th, 1948. She invited some friends over to a pool party, but she made sure that they left by the afternoon because she had plans for a home-cooked dinner with Rex Harrison at her house that night. Okay. So Rex shows up, and he leaves by 9 o'clock. Okay. Um, no one can ever really be sure what was said at that dinner. Was she alone with him? No servant, no maid, no anybody? She was completely alone. She cooked the meal, everything. Harrison later said in interviews with the police that they talked about careers and movies, and she mentioned that she was having some financial difficulties. But most people believe that that was the night that Rex Harrison finally broke up with Carol Landis, which sent her in into a dark spiral. And this culminated with her doing some pretty crazy things after he left. She continued to drink. She tried to call several friends, including Marguerite Hames, who was the mother of actor Dick Hames, who was a close friend. And it was the 4th of July weekend, so nobody was home. Nobody was home. Marguerite said she got the message later, but thought it was too late to call. And sometime in the wee hours of the morning, she packed up everything Rex Harrison had ever given her, pictures, gifts, everything, put it in a suitcase, and she took it and dropped it on the driveway of Harrison's friend, the British stage actor Ronald Culver. So was this near her home in Pacific Palisades? It was pretty close. So was, she didn't have to drive? She didn't have to drive. Okay. Well, she did drive, but it wasn't far. Okay. It's funny because this has been reported over and over again, and I can never find any incident where Ronald Culver was ever interviewed or he ever confirmed that there was a suitcase. Many people believe that Culver took the suitcase, which also had a suicide note for Rex. And, and he gave it to it. Rex? Well, he, oh, wait, he, he burned, burned it. it. That he destroyed the suitcase, all the mementos, and the note. We'll never really know, but that's also been widely reported what happened. Well, after that, Carol went back to her house, and sometime in the early morning, Morning hours of July the 5th, 1948, Carol took a deliberate overdose of second all and she ended her life. She was 29 years old. And who found her? Well, that's the interesting part. Her body was discovered in her bathroom by her maid, Fannie Mae Bolden, who had just started working for her, mm -hmm. poor, poor woman, and Rex Harrison. Interesting. Very interesting. Rex had been trying to call her that morning. He couldn't get her, so he came over and Fannie Mae and Rex found her body. But what would be the first thing you would do if you found 
found your girlfriend's body? Uh, call the police or call for an ambulance or call somebody. Uh, exactly. Which is not what Rex Harrison did. And what did he do? Well, Rex says that he tried to find the number for Carol's doctor in the house. He couldn't find the number. So he went home to look up the number of his own doctor. Okay. okay. Makes sense? That makes perfect <laughs> sense. That's what I would do. I know. Well, and there's been a lot of speculation about what really happened and was Carol still alive when Rex found her? Was she dead already? Some people say she still had a slight pulse and he just left her. Well, and with that kind of medication, you never know. She could have potentially been revived. Yeah, you never know. Well, he finally called Ronald Culver, the guy that Carol had dumped all the, the goods on earlier, and Culver was the one who suggested that he called St. John Hospital. The hospital told him that maybe, just maybe, he should call the police. <laughs> Which Unbelievable. Well, Harrison was quoted in the newspaper saying, the idea hadn't entered my head before. I just hadn't thought of the police. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So Harrison did go back over to the house. He met with the police. Carol had left a suicide note for her mother, Clara. But there are several people who were inside that house after her death, including Carol Landis's maid, recalling seeing two suicide notes, one for Clara and one for Rex Harrison. Well, there's lots of speculation that there was a policeman on the scene who actually took the second suicide note. And interestingly enough, in her autobiography, Change Lobsters and Dance, which, by the way, is one of the best titles ever for an autobiography. Is that Lily Palmer's it's autobiography? It's Lily Palmer's autobiography. Yeah. She wrote that during the whole frenzy of what was going on, that a policeman showed up at their house and approached their lawyer and said that he had the Rex Harrison suicide note and was graciously willing to sell it to them for $500. So did that happen, do we think? Well, Lily Palmer says it in her biography, so I think it did. Yeah. Lily and Rex talked it over and they decided screw it. We're not paying. Just release the note and, oh. and let the cards Chips fall. fall. They yeah. Yes. Well, apparently the cop had a change of heart because after the lawyer said no, he ended up giving the lawyer an envelope that had the note in it. So when Lillian Rex finally got the note, they opened it up and the note said, the cat has a sore paw. She must go to the vet. That's what the note said? <laughs> I know. What? What does that mean? I, nobody Can knows. you say that again? I, it said, the cat has a sore paw and she must go to the vet. So there was no damaging suicide note to Rex Harrison that had all this juicy information in it. I mean, if that really was the note... Then what? Yeah, then, then... Yeah. That one just blows my mind. It actually gives credence to, to my way of thinking that she didn't intend to kill herself. That that was sort of a attention-getting yes. thing. In her past, she had attempted suicide, but it was very much for attention, not a real true Truthful yeah, attempt. Um, yeah. So it sort of falls into that area, I think. So let's talk about Rex Harrison for a second. He and Lily Palmer end up going to Carol Landis's <laughs> funeral. There's a photo of that on your blog. Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. he looks as guilty as sin. I'm sorry, but he does. Yeah. they Maybe sheepish is a better word. They showed up. I mean, I guess in order to show innocence, you have to show up to your supposed friend's funeral. Yeah. But the funny thing is also in Lily Palmer's autobiography, she has the 
best lines. She wrote, what does the well-dressed woman wear to the funeral of her husband's mistress? Oh my gosh. I think it says everything. It does. The other thing in looking at this story that I think is really frustrating is the way that Hollywood can be your best friend and Mm -hmm. when you're on the rise and then can turn around and just kick you in the dirt. And when she was alive... There were a lot of people who talked about her behind her back and thought yes. she was a floozy. Yes. And, and as soon as she died, poor tragic Carol Landis, they all showed up at the funeral. Absolutely. And they all talked about how wonderful she was. And she was wonderful, yes. but it was a little too late. A little too late. Yeah, she was a complicated woman. I mean, there, there was a lot of layers to Carol Landis. Going back to Lily for a second, and this is, I think, a little bit poetic justice because Lily stood by her man for better or for worse. Yeah, and how does, she, how does she get thanked? About four or five years later, Rex Harrison begins another affair with actress Kay Kendall. <sighs> Only this time, while they're having the affair, Kay Kendall's diagnosed with terminal cancer. So Lily Palmer agrees to divorce him so that he can go and take care of Kay on her deathbed. Well, Rex thought it was sort of a ploy for publicity and that they could make things look right and that he and Lily would get back together once Kay died. And? Well, Kay died. Rex comes sniffing around Lily and Lily's like, oh, no, buddy. No way. Good for Lily. I like Lily. By this time, Lily has already hooked up with this hunky South American actor named Carlos Thompson, who she married, who stayed with her until her death. So Lily finally woke up and smelled the roses about Rex Harrison. Yes, she did. And she was a beautiful woman as well. Of course, there's always been questions about Rex Harrison's responsibility in Carol Landis' death. Right. And in recent years, and I find this fascinating, Carol Landis' family members, particularly her great niece Tammy Powell, has been very vocal about their belief that there's more to the story than meets the eye. Mm. Powell wrote in a 2019 article that she says, quote, I want you to know that my family has never believed that it was a suicide. We are 100% convinced that Rex Harrison is to blame for her death. Oh. Which is some powerful stuff, some big words. Powell doesn't come right out and say she thought that Harrison killed her, but it's clear she believes he's responsible for her death. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, she brings up some really compelling argument that would sort of go against the idea that Carol Landis ever committed suicide. She says that Landis was very happy in the weeks before her death. She was going back to England to make a movie. She had many plans for the future. She also claims that that Landis' maid, Fannie Mae, said that she was happy as a lark the day of her death. And then Powell also says that... As a Catholic, Carol Landis would never commit suicide. Right, right. She was a a deeply devout Catholic, and that was just a no-no. Yeah. The family firmly believes that Harrison found Landis on the floor. He told Fannie Mae that he felt a slight pulse, but he didn't call a doctor. He didn't call the police. He basically left the scene. They also take issue with Rex lying to the police about the nature of their relationship. You know, he Mm -hmm. said they're good friends. He didn't really tell the truth about their true romantic relationship. Right. And then, and this is something that I experienced firsthand. The family also claims that in the early 1950s, Rex Harrison had a buddy on the police force go in and basically steal all of the official police files on the Carol Landis suicide. And you tried to get a copy of it, right? I did. You know, it's doing my due diligence for this. I did contact the California Department of Justice as part of the Public Records Act, and I asked to see the police report on the, the suicide. Well, I finally got this very official letter back in the mail, and it just simply says, we have no records whatsoever on this case. Ooh. Chilling. Yeah, like, that gives me goosebumps it, and what, not what in a good way. What happened to the police report? 
reports. Yeah. So there's a lot to the story that I think we'll never know. And I think that, as I've said before, the only two people who do know are Carol Landis and Rex Harrison. Mm -hmm. So in what I think of as a little bit of justice for Rex Harrison and all of this, Luella Parsons and Hedda Hopper decided to give Rex Harrison his own little moniker. Which was perfect because usually it was only the women who got those stupid little monikers. Right, right. And it was Sexy Rexy. And it was for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) Exactly. So there's that. Yeah. I think when you really just look at the whole situation, it's just a tragic story. It's just the dark side of the Hollywood dream. And it makes me realize two things, that Henry Higgins was probably a heel, and that sadly, Carol Landis never found the love she so desperately wanted. Right. At least she lives on in film. She does. And she can continue to be remembered. Let's... Give the answer to our Hollywood pop quiz. Ah, the pop quiz. So the answer is um, Jacqueline Suzanne later went on to write the fantastic trashy novel Valley of the Dolls, and she based the character of Jennifer North on Carol Landis. And of course, Jennifer North was played in the movie by the also tragic Sharon Tate. How many of you got that right? (laughs) This has been a fascinating discussion about Carol Landis. I'm excited for next week's episode. We're going to be discussing some of our favorite Halloween spooky movies and some that are perhaps not known to our listeners. So I'm really excited for that. Oh, it's going to be fun. Well, everybody, thanks for listening. And if you have any questions or comments or want to drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at from beneath the Hollywood sign.com. That's this week's view. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. You've been listening to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign with Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara, the podcast that celebrates amazing stories of Tinseltown from its golden era. Join us next week for another episode and learn something else about Hollywood you probably never knew. Take a moment and give us a five-star rating and a positive review. And tell your friends about us, too. It'll help grow the podcast. Visit Steve's website at FromBeneathTheHollywoodSign.com. The executive producers are Steve Kubine and Nan McNamara. Executive producer and post-production supervisor, Lindsay Schneble. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Visit airwavemedia.com to listen and subscribe to their other fine shows like The Box of Oddities and The Shallow End with Schneble and Toth. Copyright 2023. All rights reserved. That's a wrap. At Mysteries at Midnight, be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Have you ever wondered how inbred the Habsburgs really were? What women in the past used for birth control? Or what Queen Victoria's nine children got up to? On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. Join me every Tuesday for History Tea Time, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed.